Welcome to another episode of the AAA Northeast Podcast. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another AAA Car Conversations with. My name is John Paul, AAA's car doctor. And with me this time in this Conversations with is Sam Fiorani. Sam Fiorani is the Vice President of Global Vehicle Forecasting for Auto Forecast Solutions. Sam, I had a, I had a double check to make sure I got that right, uh, <laughs> to uh, make sure we uh, put you in the right light here. So thank you for joining us on AAA Car Conversations with. Oh, anytime. Glad to be here. And first off, tell us about the company you work for and a little bit about your background. Well, uh, Auto Forecast Solutions has been around for seven years now. Uh, the the core group of us have been around, have been together as a group for 20 plus years. So we've been doing this a long time. We worked for a large, a bunch of the major uh, analysis companies providing data for the automotive industry for, for quite a while. Uh, you and I met when I worked for Standard & Poor's DRI in uh, Lexington. That's right. Where I did uh, a similar job to what I do now, but uh, working for Standard & Poor's at the time. So um, do you guys all wear wizard hats and stare into, you know, stare into crystal balls to kind of come up with answers to things or? I have my magic eight ball over here somewhere. And I, I, I do, we do use a little bit of that, but, it, but a lot of the work we do is knowledge of the industry and knowledge of uh, how companies typically interact with, with different markets. If uh, a company brings out a, a pickup truck or a, a sports car or something like that, we have to know how their buyers traditionally like that product and how it interacts with the other products in the marketplace. Every time a, a manufacturer comes out with a new vehicle, their, their goals are pie in the sky. And they think, well, we're going to sell every one we can possibly build. So we're going to sell two, three, four hundred thousand of these things. And usually companies come to us and say, no, no, really, what are they going to do? And we take in the market forces and, and the competition and figure out, well, they're not going to sell 200,000, they're going to sell 120,000. And, and as a supplier or a financial house or whoever needs the information, they need to balance that out between what their contract says that they need to hit 200,000 and where we think they're going to be so they can make their business case. And, uh, you know, this past year has been tough with COVID for both on the manufacturing side, the parts supplier side and the retail side. Uh, there has been in the past few months, certainly a bit of a turnaround there. And it looks like maybe things are starting to go in the right direction, but it looked pretty bleak about a year ago, right? Oh, absolutely. The, this whole, uh, the, the automotive marketplace is great because it's usually pretty steady. But then they throw in these monkey wrenches like uh, the financial situation of a decade ago and COVID last year. When you throw in these monkey wrenches like this, it, it, it throws everything up in the air and our job becomes even more crucial, figuring out when things are going to come back, when uh, people are going to start buying again, when vehicles are going to be able to produ be produced. There's a whole bunch of different pieces to this puzzle. And the other thing I just read the other day about, you know, you don't think about this, but until you think about it, um, there is a chip shortage and a foam shortage. And uh, we, so apparently there's not enough foam to make seats. And there's and there was a big, there was a fire at a chip factory, which has uh, impacted um, chip manufacturing around the world. And that has, again, thrown one of those monkey wrenches into this business. The, the chip shortage started with COVID where the chip manufacturers 
didn't expect the automotive industry to bounce back as quickly as it did. So they weren't, they weren't ready. On top of that, you had the fire that they had at another plant. Uh, we have uh, the weather in Texas that screwed up the petrochemicals, which screwed up foam. So now we have a foam shortage. On top of that, we had a steel problem. Uh, hot rolled steel has gone up in price to the point where it's going to cost more to put steel into cars. Uh, even the the ship in uh, the Suez Canal is throwing off things globally. So there's a lot of things going on right now that don't normally happen in the industry. Well, it looks like as of this date, they have the ship moved a little bit so it's you can get by it. So, so that's, that's the good news. But who would have ever thought that a giant container ship would turn sideways in the Suez Canal and, you know, take out billions of dollars worth of um, worth of business, I guess, or um, over, you know, on, on it day over day. So it's pretty, pretty interesting stuff. And again, when you look at and when you work at this and you look at what happens, um, customers are kind of constantly changing on the retail side as well. You know, there was a time, you know, six, seven, eight years ago that a lot of people were saying, oh, you know, the, um, you know, millennials aren't that interested in cars and the generation in front of millennials had no interest in vehicles. And now it seems like some of those folks had kids and said, we need to get cars now. And, and so the idea of um, your ability to stay focused without, I guess, taking some of the, the emotional uh, stories you hear must be, must be part of the challenge as well. Oh, I've, I've been in the automotive industry my professionally for the last 30 plus years. Uh, I've been interested in cars all my life. So I've been following the, the people in the industry, the people in the hobby, all these different groups together. And for years, as you said, the, they said the next generation and the generation after that aren't interested in cars, but that really wasn't that true. They were, they may have delayed getting a driver's license because they didn't need to. They were doing, a, they were doing things virtually before we were doing things virtually. They were on phones and, and devices and they didn't really need to congregate. So, but by the time they got to 18 and 21, suddenly a car was important. And as you said, as they had families, it becomes even more important. And then with COVID and they don't want to share an Uber, they don't want to share a Lyft. They're suddenly people are buying cars for that reason, to get out yeah. of a, a shared vehicle. Yeah. Um, Volvo in the last couple of weeks said they're going to go to online buying and I guess still have their dealers, but they're going to kind of have a fixed price and online buying. Um, do you have any thoughts about that? Do you think, I mean, I guess that's almost what Tesla does today, but, um, do you think that's the future or is this something you think Volvo's just trying out testing the waters with? Well, Volvo's testing out with uh, electric vehicles. They, yeah. They've concentrated on just their, their new electric vehicles. But uh, with all the virtual things that we've learned to do over the last year, and dealers are learning to do that as well, there, could, there is a lot of online buying coming. And it may be the future. Maybe people don't want to sit in a dealership. And it, it, will, it will partially be the factory when you have these new startups like Tesla and Rivian and, and Volvo's EV cars. But franchise laws are going to make it very difficult for manufacturers to, to sell exclusively online. It's going to have to be dealers selling online until some laws get changed in, in most of the states around the country. Yeah. And, and personally, and it may be my age, um, but I still want to go out and 
look at the car, touch the car, make sure it's the car that I want. Um, you know, the idea of buying something online and, you know, from a gigantic vending machine and have a car suddenly show up at my house. Yeah. You know, I have, I have enough trouble doing that just with normal online buying, uh, yeah. let alone, let alone something as expensive as a car. I, I'm fully with you on that. When you, when you spend, when you spend $20 on uh, clothing or whatever you buy online, that's one thing. Those are commodities. But when you buy a car, we, the, us, the older generation are used to the cars that had the Monday morning or Friday afternoon build quality. Right. It's, it's a lot less than it used to be. The cars are a lot more homogenous, but still there's a, there's something about getting in the car, the tactile feel of the steering wheel, the seat, the, the look out the window. I, I can't imagine spending now the average is $40,000. I can't imagine spending $40,000 on anything without actually touching the product. Yeah. And it's so important today to not just road test the car, but road test the tech inside the car. Oh, and you yeah. can't do that with videos and, you know, and interaction, even if you do something like this, a video interaction with the salesperson or the manufacturer, you're still not going to know how that tech works for you. And I don't have the newest phone, for instance, but I noticed in some of the newest cars that I drive, the charging pad, which is kind of a nice feature, you know, you don't have to hook up a cable to it to charge your battery. And sometimes the charging pad isn't big enough to charge the phone right. because they developed the charging pad before they developed phones as big as they are today so <laughs> right oh yeah 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 yeah. yeah. no the, the, a lot of things like you said all the digital things in a car the infotainment system on a car is a, a very tactile thing i need to know where those buttons are because they're not physical buttons anymore so i need to know how much distraction do i have when i need to change to the navigation or change a radio station or or adjust the temperature in the car how much distraction is that going to be is this going to annoy me and a month from now that I can't find whatever it is. I, my car personally, I, I, I got annoyed because it has a button for satellite radio. It's a, not a physical button. It's a digital button, Yeah. but you cannot upgrade the radio to satellite radio. Oh, and I'm like, okay. So they didn't take the digital button off, but it's there. And I, I had to get an aftermarket radio to put in for the satellite radio. Yeah, so if you were looking online and you saw that, you would yeah. automatically assume you could. There, there's fact, the button right there. Why, why yeah, can't I get why, it? Why can't you? Yeah, no, it is. That's I think that's one of the things that, you know, and people still, you know, and of course, you, you, you and I were talking a minute or so before this, and my commute has changed from 47 miles to about a couple dozen steps. So I'm not in my car as much as I used to be, which is typical of a lot of people. But prior to that, I was in my car three hours a day. Yeah. Now, oh, yeah. three hours a day is a long time to be in your car. And that was just going back and forth to work, not saying that I was going out and doing other things. So three hours a day in a car that doesn't satisfy your needs can be a bit frustrating. Absolutely. No, I've, I've told a lot of people that, you know, when they look at a car, oh, that's a great looking car. Like, how does it feel inside? You're going right. to spend all your time inside. You know, does the seat fit you? Does, does do the gauges sit where you want? Are the, the line, the sight lines out of the car? Do they fit you? Do they do they bother you? Is there something in the way? Uh, one of my dream cars, I finally got a chance to drive a couple of years ago, and I'm like, 
I can't see out of this car. I hate from the driver's seat, but on paper, it looked beautiful. And when you get in the car, you physically were, were annoyed by the sight lines. Yeah, I mean, that absolutely can happen. And that's, and even though, you know, some of these companies will probably offer some sort of, you know, if you don't like it in a couple of days, call us back um, right. and we'll return it. But I don't like returning stuff I buy online anyway. That doesn't always go that well. And like you said, yeah. with a $40,000 plus investment, how, you know, it's it's a lot to, uh, I guess, you know, put your faith into that it's all going to work out the way it should. Yeah, it's, now, it's one thing returning $20 about, socks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, talk, we talked about Volvo and electric cars. GMs even sort of changed their logo to kind of look like a plug. Um, yeah. And they're going to be, you know, 100% electrification in Massachusetts, where I live, um, all new cars in 15 years are supposed to be electric. Uh, what are your studies showing as far as electric vehicles, both from the manufacturer's side, but also consumer acceptance? What do you, how, how are your studies showing that consumers are going to accept electric vehicles and are they excited about it? Uh, our job is to figure out what the market is going to, where, how many vehicles are going to be out there, things like that. And we did a study for 2040, the best case scenario by 2040, that will have 40 plus percent of the global market being EV, which means that 60% of the market will have an internal combustion engine. Best case scenario for EVs. Hmm. And so we really don't think it's going to happen that quickly. Uh, consumers will make the transition the problem is more, uh, how long does it take me to charge this vehicle? Will it get me? Americans are, are the anomaly in the world because when you live in Europe or you live in China or you live in Japan, your commute is shorter. You drive less. The streets are narrower. The, all the different differences in the, in the way people use cars make their products different. Americans want to be able to get in the car and drive 400 miles in a sitting. And you can't do that in an electric vehicle. So if, if, I, if I were to take an electric vehicle and drive it 300 miles, I have to let it charge for hours before I can take it any substantial distance again. So it, it, it becomes different for us as Americans to want to buy an EV to replace our main vehicle. Right. So the idea of having it as a secondary vehicle is, is a great idea, but you're, uh, that means you still have to maintain a gas-powered car. Uh, all the laws in the in the United States, California, Massachusetts, New Jersey, a couple other states are looking at outlawing the sale of brand new internal combustion vehicles in the next 10, 15 years. So that goal is out there. Those things will probably be delayed because of consumer acceptance, because of uh, the, the electric grid, because of battery technologies, all kinds of different things that will get in the way. However, Europe, China, Japan, South Korea, those things could see those things happening much quicker. And so it'll boost the, the global need for electric vehicles. Yeah. I mean, even, even to the point where, like you said, you can drive a couple hundred miles, 300. Maybe if you went out and bought a Lucid Air, you can drive 500 miles. But the bigger the battery, the longer the recharge time. So right. even if you're charging it incredibly high voltage DC current, which no one recommends to do that on a regular basis because it's hard on the batteries. Right. But if you were doing that, it's still a matter of you're stopping for 20 minutes to an hour every yeah. 
four or five hours, which realistically you probably should stop every few hours and take a break anyway. But the idea that you have to do that and you're tied into that becomes a little bit more of a challenge. And right. I know years back when the BMW i3 came out with the little gasoline engine with the two gallons of gas it kept. And I'm like, well, this is kind of stupid, an electric car with a gasoline engine until I ran out of electricity at about <laughs> 60 miles. And it was like, you know, having this little gasoline engine that could get me at least to the next gas station so I could fill up again until I got home actually wasn't a terrible idea. Now, that was a very low, you know, that was a that was an electric car that had a pretty short range. Right. Uh, probably, like you said, ideal for Europe and China, but not ideal for somebody who commutes 100 miles round trip back and forth to work. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have, you have that issue. And, and until more businesses offer plugs at work, um, they're if you look, if you walk around and you look places, you'll see charging stations everywhere. They just need to be in my office. They need to be at my grocery store. They need to be the places that I go every day so that when I go there, I can just plug it in, do my business, get back out. It's I've got five, 10, 20 minutes worth of charge while I'm there and I can go somewhere else. And, and like you said, um, even with, you know, the federal government is supporting electric vehicles and there's money out there to add uh, some incredible number of charging stations. I heard, you know, you know, 500,000 charging stations or something. Um, but then you have to know that the electrical grid can support that type of usage. And right now across the country, we see brownouts in high electrical demand areas. And there's some thought that your electric vehicle, when it's plugged into your home, will work sort of backwards and support the grid by selling your battery power back to the grid sort of thing to balance it all out. Right. But there's a lot of steps in between suddenly opening the equivalent of what we have today for gas stations, right? Oh, uh, yeah, no, you need to, it's, it's not like a gas station where you're gonna stop every five minutes. You wanna be able to charge wherever you stop. Right. So if I'm going for lunch, if I'm going for dinner, if I'm going to the grocery store, uh, if I'm going to the drugstore, wherever, I want to be able to plug it in and let me do my business and get a little charge out of it. Yeah. That being said, you said that, you know, in the next 15 or 20 years, best case is 40% of the vehicles on the road are electric. Um, Fully this, electric. Just today, we had, a, we had a, a meeting at work and I just, we were talking about a couple of years ago, autonomous vehicles were all kind of what was the discussion, um, you know, in the news and the media. And today, um, I asked the same question, how many people are interested in an autonomous vehicle? And there was, there was 15 people on our call this morning, and two or three people raised their hands. And I said, how many people are interested in an electric car? And probably 70% of the people raised their hands. Oh, yeah. So, Certainly, there is interest in electric cars, even in a very small sampling like that. Um, when manufacturers come to you with this sort of pie in the sky that they want to sell um, as many electric cars as they did gasoline, how, how does your business kind of bring them back to earth, I think? It's it's a lot of things changing, and and the and the mindset takes a long time to change. How long ago was it that nobody wore a seatbelt, and now, you know, ninety five percent of people drive with seatbelts? It's 
it takes a while for this mindset to to adjust to the new normal and the new normal being electric vehicles eventually eventually uh, we'll we'll get there in 20 30 years that that you will go to a dealership and not think twice that it's electric uh we had we had trouble getting people to get to diesel uh, 30 40 years ago when it was popular uh, but electric is the next move in that direction yeah. and and, we'll, and they, a lot of manufacturers understand that, but they also understand that they're, they're, the media now is catering to stockholder pricing. So General Motors comes out and says, we're going to target 2035 to be all electric. That is more towards the stockholders to say, we are a technology company. We are not a legacy auto, uh, automobile manufacturer. So we're we're coming up and we have new things to talk about. We are not stuck in our old ways. And, and you saw their stock price go up when they, they made the announcement. So it's, it's, it's going that direction, but it's not going that direction as fast as they're saying it's going to. And, I, and I'm pretty sure they understand that it's not going to happen that quickly either. Where do you see hydrogen in this picture? Hydrogen is a long-term play. We need to find clean ways to make hydrogen. We need uh, an infrastructure to deliver it. Uh, fuel cells, to me, are the next step after electric vehicles. And the, the problem with electric vehicles is you still have that battery. The good thing about electric vehicles is they use the same drivetrain that you will use for a fuel cell. You just replace the battery with a fuel cell. So the idea of being able to refuel in a few minutes, just like you do with your gas car, and then have no exhaust emissions as you drive along. That's that's the dream. Yeah, and I I agree I agree hundred percent. But it, but it I think, is a while off. Yeah, I think uh, to me electric seems like the interim step until hydrogen yeah. becomes practical and reasonably priced and all of those things yeah. that that you look at. Um, you know, you mentioned not diesel. Only, not only reasonably placed, but clean to make. The, right. the problem is that it, it it uses so much carbon energy now to make hydrogen that we need to find a, a cleaner way to do it, a cheaper way to do it, and a, and a better way to, to get it out to everybody. Yeah. The best way to make hydrogen is with a nuclear reactor. And who wants one of those in their backyard, right? Yeah, I, I'm uh, all a fan of a solar powered energy uh, uh, hydrogen station everywhere. Just crack the, the water right there, break it into hydrogen and oxygen, give you the hydrogen, let the oxygen into the atmosphere. We're good to go. Yeah, it just it sounds that simple. We should all do it. Um, it but yeah, it's just, it, that, it's it, just that unfortunately, easy. it doesn't work quite as easily as that. You mentioned <laughs> diesel and you're you're an automotive enthusiast and and uh, you and I probably both agree that the, the most fun you could probably have would be uh, a diesel car with a manual transmission, uh, which is probably something we'll never see again for no. an awfully long while. And if that diesel car with the manual transmission happened to be a, a little wagon, even happier, you know, that you could use it for, you know, there, you know, whether it's a BMW or a, you know, Jetta sport wagon. You know, th th with the diesel engine and a manual transmission, those are fun cars to drive and pretty practical at the same at yeah. the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, 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 you look around and journalists are the only people who want a station wagon, stick shift, diesel, all wheel drive. And, you know, it's it's 400 people in the United States who want them. And and you and I are among the few that, that actually yeah. look for that that vehicle. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, 
you know, because because you kind of have, you know, have a, have your kind of finger on the pulse, and this is this is almost a little bit silly, but um, you know, Ford came out with the Mustang Marquee. The Mustang Marquee has had rave reviews. It's done really really well. Um, is it just because of my advanced age that I have a problem with a four door hatchback? SUV Mustang, I would have been much happier if they just called it the Mach-E. Well, I I fully understand that. Hanging out with people, especially people in the hobby, people who collect cars and bring car shows, they are very, very sensitive about their nameplates. You know, you can't touch Bel Air, you can't touch Mustang, you can't, all these different names that, that hold a special place in collectors' minds. But names have to evolve or else they're going to die. Uh, Mustang is definitely one of those ones where it is a small niche. It is two door coupes and convertibles and rear wheel drive and big V8 engines. And that's, that's going to go away. And so if you don't evolve into something more modern, we're going to lose the name and we've lost, you know, we lost Camaro once already and we're probably going to lose it again. So if the Mustang doesn't evolve into something more practical and more useful going forward, the name will go disappear. We lost Thunderbird. We lost, uh, you know, name all the classic names that we've lost over the last 20, 30 years because the market just shrank. This is one of those things. And, and with the, using the Mustang name, making an EV in this day and age is, is impractical because people are going to want uh, something special out of it. They, they don't, the, the electric vehicles of 40 years ago were lead acid batteries. They were slow. They were terrible to, to charge. The new ones are nice modern cars, but you're not going to sell a car just because it's electric. You're going to sell a car because it has an image and a Tesla has an image. People want to own a Tesla. They don't necessarily want to own an electric vehicle. So they're buying the Tesla. Well, in this case, they're buying a Mustang. It's a Mustang Mach-E, it's electric, it's four-door, but it's a Mustang. If they did the same thing for the Corvette name or for the Challenger name, something else like that, these could appeal to buyers and say, oh, I'm not just buying an electric vehicle, I'm buying a Mustang. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely a good point. Now I'm going to, I'm going to write it off as my grumpy old age or something, so. Yeah. I've been a big fan of Mustangs all my life yeah. too. So it's, yeah. it's, it was so, a difficult transition, but it's a necessary one. Yeah. Something that we're starting to see the beginning of maybe is pickup trucks have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And the compact pickup truck is almost the same size as some of the pickup trucks from the seventies and earlier. Um, a true compact pickup truck, it looks like, and you, what made me think of it, you mentioned some of the names that we've lost. There's some thoughts that Ford may be coming out with a smaller pickup truck called the Maverick. Yeah. Um, and Hyundai's coming out with, what is it, the Santa Cruz, kind of an El Camino sort of Hyundai. Um, based on your research, and my gut feeling is, there's a need for small pickup trucks. There's a need for smaller, more affordable trucks that don't cross that average vehicle price of $40,000 that are truly, you know, affordable trucks that are going to get you where you want to go run to the home improvement store. You're not going to put a ton of stuff in the back of it, but kind of that homeowner pickup truck. Um, Are you seeing some of that in your, in your uh, research? 
the the prices of these trucks have just gone astronomical over there when 40 years ago that that truck that is now the size of a, a ranger or a colorado was affordable it was a it was a utilitarian vehicle it had a, you had to option up for carpeting and different pieces that are definitely standard on everything today but the uh, pickup truck today is a luxury vehicle so you get to the smaller trucks which are almost workaday trucks at times yeah Even if, especially if you spec them out to thirty thousand dollars or less but uh the smaller the the buyer of all trucks today for the most part is not dirtying the bed right there's still the contractors there's still the people who use them but a large portion of these trucks are are being used to drive back and forth to work that bed never gets dirty they may go to home depot and buy something and throw it in the bed and bring it home but a lot of them just never get used as a truck and a smaller truck could fit that niche of the guy who wants the image of a truck but doesn't want the price or the gas mileage or yep. uh the need of uh, parking it outside because a truck doesn't fit in the garage yeah no every time i see a original ranger or a toyota pickup or even a uh every once in a while i run into an old Datsun pickup yeah. and i'm like these were cool little trucks that yeah, yeah you could go get some pine bark mulch and some other fertilizer or whatever um you know that couple of times a year or that time you needed to carry that you know big box of something that's not going to fit in your your normal size car perfect vehicle for that but yet something that can get 30 miles per gallon and be comfortable enough to drive right right no the, the maverick will be a smaller truck than a ranger and uh, more practical and less expensive uh but it will be car based so it's not yep. going to be as, as rugged as your body on frame ranger or colorado or tacoma right. uh it'll, it'll fit a niche that that isn't being filled right now and the maverick is the test if yep. the maverick sells well then you're going to start seeing uh, other people jumping into there the whole problem with a pickup truck though is it's got to be an american built vehicle right because of, of taxes and uh, on, on trucks specifically the so, chicken tax still exists huh the chicken tax still exists i i love explaining that to people who don't understand where it came from or what it does but it the one thing it does is make sure that trucks are pickup trucks are built in north america right and uh and every time a truck appears somewhere in the world oh could this come to the united states no it cannot yeah. come to the united states because it costs 25 percent more well and i think i think the uh the classic example of that is the uh the old subaru brat that, that's with my the, favorite one with the with the plastic rear seats in it so it was not a pickup truck right so. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's definitely my favorite uh, example of that. Yeah, that, no, that absolutely. And the, the fact that Toyota opened a plant in Long Beach, California, to put beds on trucks just so they were finished in the United States. Right. No, ab absolutely. So, uh, so we've covered the future. We've covered electric vehicles. Uh, we've uh, we've talked about where the electricity is going to come from. The one thing we didn't talk about, and you and you. We've brought it up a couple of times. Is the average transaction price of a new car forty thousand um, dollars and up? The last uh, GMC midsize pickup truck I drove now was fully loaded, off-road package, fifty-five thousand um, yeah. dollars. I I uh, looked at a Cadillac Escalade, one hundred and six thousand um, dollars. Cars that cost you know more than homes did not that many years ago. At what point? do you think the American buying public is going to cry uncle and say, you know what, 
we want a nice car. We want a safe car. We want to be able to take our kids to school. We want to be able to go to the grocery store. But forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars is just too much money for a car. And and there are people who don't want to lease. And yeah, you can lease for a little bit less. But when it comes to outright buying, is there a pain threshold that you think people just don't want to cross at some point? Uh, the pain threshold will be when car manufacturers don't sell 16, 17 million vehicles in a year. Uh, and as long as they're happy selling the number they're selling, it's the prices are not going to come down. The prices of used cars have gone up as well, but they're filling the gap. Uh, 20, 30, 40 years ago, a used car was, was dead at 100,000 miles. Today, 100,000 miles is broken in. Right. Uh, my my fleet of cars with my family, my car has eighty six thousand miles on it. It's the lowest mileage car in our fleet. Yeah. So, having a, a car with one hundred two hundred thousand miles is a good practical second car or primary car even, uh, and the prices of those can be had for ten or fifteen or twenty thousand dollars. And mm-hmm. and like you said, on the off lease cars. I can buy a really good off-lease car for $20,000 and it would be way, way nicer than I would spend on $30,000 brand new in a, in the marketplace. So yeah. the used cars are the new entry-level cars. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, I guess that is the case, um, you know, that, that people are going to do that. And you're right. As long as people see the value in spending that sort of money for cars, auto manufacturers are going to continue to make them for that sort of money. So, um, and even though there was, uh, you know, there's studies that show that, you know, the Toyota Corolla you buy today versus the one you bought 20 years ago in, you know, inflation adjusted dollars is probably cheaper, but it's still a $30,000 Corolla. And that's a lot of money to spend on a Toyota Corolla, even if you are making more money and with cost of inflation. Yeah, it, it is. It's kind of kind of interesting the way it all works. Before I let you go, you mentioned your dream car. What is it? Oh, I I at one point I wanted a Bricklin. I wanted a '74 Bricklin with an AMC engine and a stick shift. And uh, I was working at a car show a number of years ago where I was the judge of a classic car show. And the local the AACA museum in Hershey brought their Bricklin out on the f- show field. And afterward, I'm like, can I drive that back to the museum? Oh, sure, get in. I get in there, it's a stick shift, it's everything. And the A-pillar was in my way. I couldn't see out the front of the car. I cannot believe this has crushed my dream. Well, there's always a DeLorean. You can maybe go in that direction. <laughs> uh, that's that's down the street. I'll, I'll try that one next. Yeah. And for people who don't know, the Bricklin was a pretty unique car. It was... Uh, uh, developed by Malcolm Bricklin, the guy who brought us the Yugo to the United States and the Subaru Don't and the Subaru. That. But I like to, I like to think of him as a Yugo <laughs> and, um, it had gold wing doors. It was, uh, it was a little bit underpowered as I recall. It was a safety vehicle. It yep. was designed to, at the time when bumpers were coming in, that the bumpers were integrated and it actually looked good with all its bumpers, but it had a, it had a, a decent sized V8 engine. And, uh, it was, it was, underpriced to start with and they jacked the price up and it was more expensive than a Corvette. So it was, it was a hard sell. Yeah, no. Well, I wish you the best on trying to, maybe you can find something that will almost fit your, your fantasies or, you know, and that's like most fantasies when they become reality, they're, 
Yeah. They, they, they lose the magic. So Absolutely. Sam, I want to thank you for taking time out of your day and joining us on AAA Car Conversation with, and just again, Sam Fiorani, Vice President of Global Vehicle Forecasting for Auto Forecast Solutions. Sam, thank you and uh, be well and stay safe. Great talking to you. Take care of yourself and take care. see you soon. Thank you for listening to the AAA Northeast podcast. For more information about AAA, go to AAA.com.